August 27th, 1883. August 27th, 1883, the island of Krakatoa in Indonesia. Krakatoa is a small island now. It used to be a large island. Most of it is gone because it's a volcanic island. And on that date, uh, Mount Krakatoa erupted. And it is, as far as we know, the loudest recorded event in human history. Now, there might have been louder events, but we didn't have the recording ability. We didn't have, um, of course, we didn't have decibel meters in 1883, but there were... uh, there was the ability to measure air pressure spikes and, you know, sort of transmit that into decibels today. So Krakatoa blows, and it's loud. So maybe you've been ever, a couple weeks ago, I was having lunch with my daughter Sarah at Giacomo outside on the, on the sidewalk area, and a fire truck came by just blaring at full. And so we just had to stop talking, right? You've been there. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's so loud. That is about 110 decibels. Right, it's right that threshold of pain for a person. It's really loud. The way decibels work, and I checked this out this morning with uh, our acoustical engineer, John Sandvig, is that for every 10 decibels of higher, it is experientially twice as loud. It is a logarithmic function, of course. I have no idea what that means. That's what John said. So, um, but anyway, here's what I know. For every 10 decibels higher, it seems twice as loud. So if you were standing by a jet airplane, it would be 150 decibels. So 110 decibel uh, emergency vehicle, 120 is twice as loud as that, 130 is four times as loud as that, 140, eight times, 150, 16 times. Super loud by a jet airplane. You would blow your drums. Krakatoa was measured at 172 decibels, 100 miles away. So, to put this in perspective, that's like hearing a sound from the far side of Cincinnati right now. But not hearing a sound. Hearing something that's eight times as loud as a jet airplane. Blowing eardrums 100 miles away. That is a loud event. So if your child were to ask you, Mom, Dad, what did Krakatoa sound like? You would say something like, it probably sounded like, you know. (laughs) Is that true? Um, Yes. Like that's maybe the right shape of the sound, but we never, ever could capture the amplitude, the size of it, the impact of it. We never could communicate that. There is a problem with the text today. When we are talking about the death of Jesus, we can say it, we can describe it, we can describe the shape of it, but I'm afraid we can never actually communicate the amplitude of what happened. And the real danger is to us, and this is a passage, we cover this at Easter almost every year, and now we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we're at it again. It's common. If you were, let's say, 120 miles away from Krakatoa, you did, your drums didn't blow, maybe. Um, or actually, it was heard 3,000 miles away and described as cannon fire from a nearby ship. Heard in South Africa from Indonesia. Um, You would never get used to that. If it happened every day, 
Every day you would think the world's falling apart and you're going to die. You would never get used to that. Here's what you can get used to. If your kid went around doing that all day, you'd just say, stop it. That's annoying. I'm used to that. I don't want to hear that. So when we read, read here in Luke 23, it can just seem like that's only the shape of it. And so I, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand the, the amplitude of what is happening here for us. And it starts way back in Genesis 3. Sin has broken into our world, and it has brought destruction into our world. And God says these words to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that we sometimes call the the pre-gospel. He says, I will put to Satan, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. So that comes down to us as the, this is the first little kernel of the picture of the Messiah and the work he will do at crushing the work of Satan. The Taylor talked about a few minutes ago. And it traces its way through the Old Testament to what we're looking at today. But it makes a few stops along the way. In your insert, I put a strange passage from Deuteronomy 21. It says this, uh, and you have to understand about the Old Testament law, a lot of it's not commanding people to do something. It's saying, if you do this, then here's some parameters around it, okay? (laughs) If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God, or a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So why would a man be hanged on a tree in that culture? Answer, we just don't have any data on that. We don't know. Like, why is he saying this? Was this a tribal practice from around that they picked up? But what he's saying is, if you do this, maybe this is a notorious person, and you have to prove that the person, the death penalty happened, right? So if you hang this person who's already, you don't, they receive the death penalty, and then they're hung on a tree. I'm sorry, parents with little children, this is, yeah, I know this is traumatic, maybe hear this, but they're, they're hanged on a tree, and God says, if you do that, don't let the sun go down on it. This is a person made in the image of God still, it will defile the land, whatever that means. So what, they, what did they do? They didn't do that. They didn't hang people on trees. They didn't do it. Why would you do that? It seems like a terrible... They didn't do that. You know who did that? Hundreds of years later, the Persians did that. That was, it became a way of execution from the Persians. They invented crucifixion by hanging a person on a tree or on a stake. It got a lot worse than that for the Persians. But anyway, so... Their, their empire passed away, and the Greeks came to the scene, and they got rid of the Persian, a lot of Persian things, but they kept their form of execution. So they, the Greeks inherited this thing called uh, crucifixion. Not, it doesn't come from the Hebrews, it doesn't come from the Jews, it doesn't come from the Old Testament. It comes from the Persians, and then the Greeks, and the Greek empire gets wiped away by the Romans, and they get rid of a lot of Greek stuff, but they keep crucifixion. That's a very uh, brutal way of publicly humiliating a criminal and teaching anybody connected to that criminal, you better not do what he did. So that's where we are today. 
on a tree, on a tree, on a tree. And then Luke in particular picks this up. Uh, you may know that the, the book of Luke used to be the book of Luke-Acts together. And it came to us, that, and somehow got separated in church history, and John got stuck in the middle there. But it was one book, Luke and Acts together. And uh, the way Luke captures the cross being described is very uh, intentional. In uh, Acts 5, again, this is Luke, he's quoting Peter, get, capturing Peter and the apostles' words, uh, where they're talking back to the to the ruling authorities, Peter says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. So that's how Peter describes it. Later on in Acts 10, he says the same thing, hanging on a tree. Later on in Acts 13, Paul the apostle says the same thing. He was hung on a tree. So clearly making a connection between Deuteronomy 21 and what happened to Jesus, in case anybody didn't know that. And then uh, Galatians 3, and then we'll get into the narrative, I promise. I put this in your insert too. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And finally here, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So it could have well been also, we don't, don't let the movies, don't let the children's books confuse you. The Romans sometimes did crucify people on long beams stuck upright in the ground. A lot of times they just stuck people on a tree. Right? It's not like you can just go to Lowe's and get big beams of wood back in the first century. Right? It's like super expensive, hard to cut. It's, if, there are, if there are trees, say like a whole mountain full of trees, like a mountain full of olive trees, like the Mount of Olives, there's a lot of trees around. So it could well have been that Jesus actually was crucified on a tree. We don't know. We don't, it doesn't say. A lot of people were. There's evidence that the Romans did do that. What I want to point out here, and I realize we're in the, the weighty darkness of the book of Luke. Right, um, and it's been it's been heading here for a while, and now we're here. We're at the day. Luke is communicating to us that Jesus was under a curse, all the way back from Deuteronomy twenty-one. Jesus was under the curse of God. He became a curse for us. That's what's going on in Luke twenty. So I'll ask you to turn there or open up your insert. Luke 23. Starting in verse 44. Jesus has been tried. He's been crucified. He's on the cross. It was now about the sixth hour. By a Roman accounting, that's noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. Now, while the sun's light failed, that's an interesting way to say that. And some critics who would say, uh, who would reject anything supernatural would say, well, obviously that what's going on is a solar eclipse right there. The sun's light failed. The 
problem with that is it's Passover, which is a full moon celebration, which is the one time in the moon's face where there can't be a solar eclipse. That's a, a new moon phenomenon. Uh, this is communicating something supernatural here. That on the land for three hours, the one who is the light of the world is engulfed in darkness. The sun's light failed. Now that would be a if you, the sun's light failed, that would be a problem, if it really failed. That would be the end of the world if the sun's light actually failed, right? And maybe that's actually what's being communicated. This is a cataclysmic, cosmic, world-ending reality that's happening. The sun's light failed, and darkness rests on the land. So that should remind us of page one of the book. What's the first thing we see? Darkness was over the waters. What's the first word we hear? Let there be light at the beginning. There's let there be light. It splits the darkness. And here at the end, there's darkness that is consuming the light. Something is happening. For three hours, darkness covers the land, thick darkness, as Jesus is on the cross. What's the significance of this? At least two things, probably more. Again, it's just like little tiny shape of what's happening here, where the, where the amplitude is far beyond what we can even communicate. Darkness in Scripture is often indicative of the judgment of God on something. So one of the plagues on Egypt is darkness, plague of darkness. It is descriptively used often in the Old Testament. I picked out one in Amos 8. This is a prophecy of the northern kingdom is going to get overrun by the Assyrians. And he uses elevated metaphorical language, the prophet Amos. He says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Sorry. What does that mean? Is baldness a curse? No, it's like this. People are like, oh, pulling out their hair because of fear. That's what it's talking about. Not a knock on bald people. Sorry, you lovely bald people here, right? It's like, oh, no, pulling out the hair. And I will make it like the morning for an only son. Morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. So this is elevated language by a prophet about here's what judgment will be like. It's like the sun going down at noon and like you weeping for the loss of an only son. And here in history is the sun going down at noon and one weeping for the loss of an only son. It's judgment. It's Jesus becoming a curse for his people. It is Jesus taking on the penalty of our sin. And I'm, sometimes we need, need to do a little rehabilitation work on the cross from when, if you grow up in church. Because uh, what can be communicated is, well, there's this angry God Father. He's wrathful. And the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son, who's really nice, and he wants you. The Father wants to kill you. Jesus wants to save you, and he'll step into your place. Uh, we have to get a bigger picture of the Scripture than that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are intent on removing destruction, death, evil, and sin from this world. 
in time, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, steps into the role of what Isaiah calls the suffering servant. He takes on humanity to, uh, we would say economically, he takes the role of receiving the just payment, the just recompense, the just uh, dealing with of sin. Right? But it's, when you see the, the wrathful God of the Old Testament, who are we talking about? Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. We can't separate that out in the Old Testament. So Jesus steps into time, steps into humanity, and t- that's his role is to take that poured out. And you might say, well, why doesn't, Jesus, why doesn't God just forgive it? Just forgive it. Why does it have to be a, a payment? Okay, we intuitively know that's impossible. So I... Uh, some of you said a couple years ago, you're kind of critical about the president sometimes when Trump was president. I said, well, if he says something stupid and I it'll work for an illustration, I'll use it. So, but I want to be an equal opportunity offender, right? So in October of this last year, when our now President Biden, who um, uh, you have to be able to respect and criticize at the same time. I want to respect the office as always, no matter who's president. He said, and one of the things he said in October is, I will eliminate all of your student debt. So here's what I just want to say. Joe, you ain't going to do that. What, you gonna, are you going to pay it? Joe, you yourself are going to pay everybody's student debt. The best, most truthful thing he could say is, I am going to charge your student debt to somebody else to pay. Because that's how it has to work. Now, I'm not, it, it, I'm not talking about the morality of uh, student debt forgiveness. That's an argument for that, whatever. I'm talking about the idea that we can just eliminate debt. It's not possible. The debt has been incurred. If you have a school debt, someone must pay that. If you pay that, that's fine. If your parents pay that, that's fine. If, you say, if the government says you don't, nobody has to pay that back, you know who pays it? The school. They've already made payments to their teachers. They've already bought things. You owe that to them. If it doesn't get paid, they have to absorb it. You could say, well, taxes will pay it. Well, that's just everybody else paying it. No fear. Here's what probably we would do if we did that. We'll just print more money, which means your grandchildren will pay for it. There's no way for it not to be paid by someone. The debt has been incurred. It must be paid. That's the nature of a debt. So what is happening here? A debt's being paid. How much is the debt? Well, how much is the payment? Another way to say it is this. We've been talking about this a lot over the last couple years. How bad, how can you tell how bad a disease is? Well, what's the effect of it? Well, it can kill people. Well, that seems pretty bad. What if a disease killed every living thing? We would say, that's a really bad disease. The final disease. What if a disease killed the author of life. Well, that would be the worst disease ever. How bad is the disease of sin? What's the effect? What's the effect? It is the Son of God himself on the cross under judgment for three hours. Now, we say in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus descended into hell. Uh, That is incorrect. I don't know why the Apostles' Creed said that. Taylor taught it that one time of why they said it wrong. I don't know, but I can't remember. It better to say hell descended on Jesus. That's what the picture is. That's what that darkness is. 
So there's, a, there's another aspect of darkness too. And it began, we saw it in, uh, back in the last chapter where when Jesus is arrested and he says to the, those arresting him, you know this is wrong, but this is the hour and power of darkness. It is, it is beginning. Well, here it has come full. Darkness is indicative of satanic, destructive, evil power. And when, in Colossians, when it says we are rescued from a kingdom, it says we are rescued from the kingdom of darkness. So there's a two, at least a twofold meaning here. The Christ is undergoing judgment voluntarily for the effect of sin, and he's receiving the full weight, doing battle with and defeating the kingdom of darkness. So like there's a there's often a a debate like in theological circles about the atonement, like is, is it the atonement and what Jesus does for us like what's called penalty substitution or penal substitution, standing in our place, or is he defeating Satan? Which one's he doing? Answer, yes, that is correct. He's doing both of those. He's in our place and he's defeating Satan. Okay. Continuing on. And the curtain, we're, going to spend, we're spending far more time in the first half of this passage than the, next, the last half, so we'll be done on time-ish. Um, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So I almost never do this, but I need to draw your attention to uh, in this I put in here the ESV. That's the ESV text. It's the translation. It's a fantastic translation. Love the ESV. We use it all the time. They make a decision here that no other translation does. And I, had I noticed it before I put it in the insert, I would have changed the translation. Verse 46, it says, Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice. That's simply the Greek word kai. It means and Jesus. And every other time in this translation, passage, when you see Kai, it's translated as and. So it, it makes it look like that's a temporal sequence. The, the, the darkness, and then the curtain, and then Jesus calling out in a loud voice. It's just the word and. Luke is chunking it together. Why am I saying this? Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus calls out to the Father, he dies, and then the, the curtain is ripped in two. So I'm just showing there's no conflict between Luke and Matthew. It's just that they made Kai a then instead of an and. I'm sorry. Um, this is a good reason to go to ITS and learn Greek for everybody. But we'll take it in the order that comes. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The temple under uh, King Solomon when it was made, and still part of it, the rebuilt temple is in Jerusalem today, though it's not used for that kind of worship anymore. In the, inter- the, the, the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. It was a 30-foot by 30-foot by 30-foot cubicle room, and it was the place under Solomon where the presence of God touched down in earth. And once a year in the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and he would offer a sacrifice there for the sins of the people. And that was in the Jewish thought, you can see it all through the Psalms, that when God comes in his kingdom from that place, he will begin to spread out and renew the earth and all the nations will stream to him. That's what's going to happen in the temple from, the, from that center holy of holies. The, the, the room was covered by a huge curtain that was 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick, and 30 feet tall. So that is 26 feet to the top. So another 4 feet taller than this wall. It's a big curtain. 
it's thick. Nobody was allowed in the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and that only once a year. Nobody. And when Jesus breathes his last, the curtain of the temple is ripped in two. Matthew tells us it's ripped in two from top to bottom, just so nobody would confuse who did it. What does that mean? It means a couple things. First of all, there's a lot of symbolism here. Jesus is the true temple. His body is broken. The curtain is torn. But it also means that that's, that um, holy of holy sacrifice is done. It's completed. And it means you and I have the same access to God now that formerly only the high priest had. And further, the Jews were right. That is the place from where God would spread out and renew the whole world. The tearing of the curtain is a sign, we might say, that God has gone missional. Went out. That you have access. So think about this, guys. What it, the penalty of your sin in Christ has been done away with. It's been done away with. The power of sin in our life, we now have access to fight that power. Because of this finished work of Jesus, we have a promise that the, the presence of sin will eventually be removed from us. And you have access. What do you have access to? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, Jesus breathed his last. After all this judgment is poured out, after he takes our place, he turns back to God and says, Father, at the heart of the universe is a personal relationship. A family, a loving family relationship that you and I get invited into. That's the significance of Jesus saying, Father. Now, verse 47. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. So, Jesus dies, the curtain's torn, God goes missional, all the nations now flowing in. Not just Jewish, but Gentiles too. Who's the first Gentile convert? This centurion right here. This is salvation language. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. That word could also be righteous. This Gentile, this centurion, why was he standing there? He was part of the crucifixion. He was a crucifier of Jesus. He sees this whole thing. And he says, surely this man is innocent. He also says, as Matthew captures, surely this was the Son of God. I don't know if you have somebody in your life that you are hopeless about. The centurion who helped crucify Jesus was the first convert. We shouldn't be hopeless about anybody. The, the melting power of the cross of Christ can melt any heart. Can melt any heart. Verse 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for this had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
beating their breast. It's not like uh, an ape or Tarzan. Oh, you know, that's not what it's talking about. It's, uh, and we've all done it. We see something terrible, we go, oh, oh. Uh, it's not just the centurion is catching on. Oh, what have we done? What has happened? And now, all of his acquaintances, that would include the disciples who are not called disciples here, but acquaintances, because they're treating Jesus like an acquaintance, not as one they're following. And even the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus dies innocent and alone as a curse for you and for me. And if you trust to him, you are free. The penalty is completely paid. The power of sin is broken. The promise of the presence of sin being removed is sure. What is left for us now? Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from a Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. Um, That's important because when they go and find that there's nobody in there, we know nobody else had access to the tomb. And by the way, then you may have gotten this, in the Middle East, they don't bury people in the ground like we do. It's in a cave, at a tomb. I've been in tombs like this when I was in Israel. You, just, you step through, there's a huge stone that they roll out, and then there's like little pockets in the cave where they put bodies. This was a brand new hewn area by a wealthy man. It was the day of preparation And the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him, the women who had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is not explicit in this text, but God is the Lord of time. The Sabbath was beginning, there was a final rest that was beginning. According to the commandment. At creation, God creates and then he rests. This is the end, right? Decreation, the sun uh, fails, and now we have another creation and a rest. And Jesus is at rest, and it invites you and I to be at rest. Scripture teaches us in Hebrews 4, we'll close with this before we go to the table. Says there, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What is left for you after Jesus has had three hours of hell on a cross? After the temple curtain has been torn, what is left for us? Rest in the work he has done. We rest from our works. Rest from foolish striving to create and acquire what he gives us freely anyway. We rest from striving to cover shame, which he covers freely. We rest rest from laying hold of a future that we can secure because he's already secured it for us. We can rest. 
we can rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Uh, We need you. We have you. I pray that we would enter more deeply into that rest. I pray for any here who do not know you as Savior, that they would move towards you, that they would see what you endured uh, and offer to them, and they would grasp it. And, and for those who know that, but to us it sounds like a very small sound instead of the explosion that it is, that we would be stunned all over again at our need of you and your supply of that need. In Christ's name.